This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1204, entitled Romani Ite Dominum, <laughs> Romans go home. Our podcast title is Pod Quixote, Maniac of La Mancha, for reasons which will become obvious in the second half of the show. But I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And our feature interview today is with Ilka Tumpka, who has written um, a book called Song Woman, which is part of the Song of the Kendra. So it's book two in that, and I'm assuming it's a a trilogy because they usually do work that way. Uh, And uh, Ilka teaches fiction at RMIT University, and her first novel, Skin, was published in eight countries and was nominated for the Voss Literary Prize. Oh, and the Aurealis Awards in 2016. It says here, which is not possibly not irrelevant, uh, Ilka lives on five acres in the Macedon Ranges of Victoria. Mm. So probably not irrelevant. G'day, Ilka. Hello, or Rob. A, or Hi, a, Megan. Or Hello. Ave, as we say, in the empire. Ave. <laughs> now, I broke two of my rules reading this book. The first rule is that I never read the second book of a fantasy series when I haven't read the first one which is called uh, Skin, and uh, you've done your job, um, given us all the backstory, so I caught up very quickly. So, Mm -hmm. well done. Thank you. The second rule I broke is a particular one to me. I almost never read a fantasy book which has on its cover a woman in a cloak wafting up Welsh hillsides. (laughs) (laughs) So what made you decide to break your... Uh, reading rules. Roman discipline. <laughs> Actually, no. I, um, I, I I started reading the first couple of pages and I thought, oh, oh, oh I think I'll go with this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so perhaps it was time to... And besides which, it always helps if I break rules occasionally. It's really interesting that you say that because both the title of the book and the female figure mm-hmm. um, suggest, and, and not incorrectly, um, a strong feminine element but it's actually in comparison to my first book um there's some really powerful male characters mm. there's a lot more military um narrative so yeah i'm glad you i'm glad you <laughs> pushed through I'm not, I'm not just interested in roman military narratives although admittedly there you have hit one of my interests mm. um i come at this book from two historical uh, mythological areas of interest um, the Roman occupation of Britannia and Arthurian fiction after mm. Rome withdrew its legions. Mm. So my knowledge base includes the works of Pauline Kedge, where the one of the main characters of your book, Caradog, is a, a main character in her book, The Eagle and the Raven. Yes. And then, of course, and these, these will be very familiar to you, Rosemary Sutcliffe's yes. classic Free Legion books, um, works by Henry Treese, and even Lindsay Davis with her uh, Roman detective, Marcus Didius Falco, spent some time in, in Albion or Britannia. Mm. Um, Manda Scott. Yes, yes. And the, the Mabinogion. 
Yes. Where Caradog, older. yes, Caradog is Bran the Blessed Son in that. And, of course, Marion Zimmern Bradley's Mists of Avalon. Yeah. Which I'm sure everybody's said, oh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Caradog, uh, Caradoc, Caracatus. Um, his father was Shakespeare's Cymbeline. Yeah. Um, this is a, a character I'm fairly familiar with. He's uh, one of the main characters of your book, Song Woman, uh, a first century AD British chieftain of the Catuvelauni tribe, or the mm-hmm. Cats, mm-hmm. Uh, who uh, led the British resistance to the Roman conquest. I've in, never heard them called the Cats before. I have. In <laughs> Alan Garner's um, Redshift. Okay. Uh, have you read that one? No. Uh, now, that's an interesting one you should check out. It's... Um, it's set uh, during the Roman occupation. There's a group of um, uh, cut-off uh, Roman legionnaires from their unit. They're out in the in the wilds and uh, they call the enemy the cats, but it's all set in a, an idiom that would be very familiar if you've read any Vietnam War books. So they treat them as a, a squad of... They, mm. sp- they speak contemporary um, um, American. <laughs> okay. That's a big diversion there. Um, okay, so Caradog, as a resistance leader in the, uh, the first century AD... Uh, and this is um, like what something like thirty years before the more well-known um, Budokan revolt. Yeah, little little bit less, but yeah, that was sixty something like that. Sixty-seven, yeah. AD. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he reminds me a bit of the Welsh prince um, Owain Glendur, who led a revolt against the English in the fifteenth century as well. That, that same sort of um, we've got the high ground, we've got the hill forts, uh, the rugged country, and the Romans with mm-hmm. their. Their, um, their planes sort of organisation are pitted against them. Um, so what were you... Um, uh, where, where do you come from for this? Um, you've got your Celtic heroine, um, who's a wise woman, um, quite young, so she's mm. still not fully come into her complete wisdom mm-hmm. uh, with her um, mythological base, the, uh, the, the, the goddess worship, the mothers of the country, the... The land and the king are one, as they said in Excalibur. Mm. Mm. Um, and here she is uh, going up against the Romans and, and, and there was a massacre in the first book, which I said I haven't read. Um, where do you go to get her character from? Oh, okay. Because she is... Um, so she's the protagonist mm-hmm. of the book, but she's a fictional character, yes. unlike uh, most of the other characters who are historical. Um I would say she comes, um, you know, m- most deeply from my imagination. So, um, and and from the mythology of the period, from the from my uh, understanding and my passion for the spirituality mm-hmm. of um, pre-Roman Britain, is is where I find the inspiration for her character. Mm. Um, and she's probably the most autobiographical character. <laughs> Well, I was thinking that um, you um, live in the Massenden Ranges. You've got a fair bit of land there. I imagine you probably get out and do a bit of walking. Yeah. Uh, and part of the uh, the narrative of this, of this story is memorising songs via mnemonics that are based mm. in the landscape. Yes. Do you find yourself doing that? Well, it's interesting because that part of the novel was really inspired by um, the work of another Victorian writer called Lynn Kelly. Uh-huh. Um, and she wrote a book called The Memory Code. And ah. it's she really did a, a groundbreaking piece of research about how pre-literate societies held and organised vast systems of knowledge through oral practices and mm-hmm. through memory practices and um, 
she so she worked obviously with um, Australian Indigenous song lines and those kinds of mapping and memory um, practices, as well as the monuments in ancient Britain, um, and gave a new interpretation, you know, offered a new interpretation of those that that has actually been accepted by a lot of British archaeologists and historians. It's it's really interesting, um, and she so she and I meet quite often and chat oh. about this stuff and she absolutely does that she so she walks around her local environment and um embeds lots of world history in the different pa- places that she passes so she holds a lot of uh, she can she says she can talk for hours and hours and hours on historical events based on her um memory techniques so yeah and now she's running workshops and classes in that so i will do some of those i haven't done that i haven't um really gone into those techniques but i do walk and i do spend a lot of time in the landscape and it has had a really big impact on my um my sense of of this culture that I'm writing about absolutely and I do because I moved to the country about five years ago and I really feel like my writing has changed Mm. does it make a a difference um owning the land and working the land yourself I mean a lot of us we're peripatetic in our lives we perambulate around from one rental to another Uh, if we're lucky we get to own land and then do you feel like like working the land gives you a more of a bond and this is very important in this book yeah yes because we grow food Mm -hmm. and we keep animals and we have big orchards and that is definitely part of it but I actually walk a lot in the national parks and oh. up on Mount Masson and so I, I get off my property. Oh, but you own that anyway as a citizen <laughs> of Australia. So <laughs> it's not so much about the ownership as about the clo- the physical closeness. Uh-huh. And, I mean, it's springtime at the moment, obviously, and where I live is very cold, so the winter... I mean, it's significantly colder than Melbourne. The winters are freezing and the spring is so important you you really feel it you really see it and smell it and um yeah i i feel like uh i have a little more understanding of what it's like to live in a in a way that is completely defined by the natural world we're talking to Ilka Tamka, who's walking around with her novel Song Woman, which is um, part of the Song of Kendra cycle. Um, is there a third book in the works? Well, uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> the short answer is yes. Which, which is a giveaway because when you think about it, that means that either the protagonist survives or someone related to them does in order to go on to the third book. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Can't no, help that. No commitment. No commitment. Okay, now um, uh, one of the things that uh, I liked about this novel, you don't resile from, of course, the the, uh, the brutality of the Roman occupation of, mm. of Albion or Britannia, um, but you also don't resile from the, uh, the quite uh, hideous um, practice of human sacrifice that the Celts... Uh, uh, perform in the book, um, and regarding the latter, um, is that based on an actual bog person sacrifice? Yes, um, yeah, n- not a specific one, but mm-hmm. um, some of the the theories around how sacrifice may have been performed or approached, 
and the reasons for it that that have been postulated in relation to the bog bodies Mm -hmm. that have been found. But, yes, that triple death um, idea, um, I think... I think it was Lindo Man, you might know this more than me, that showed evidence of that triple death. So the, the garroting of the throat, the bludgeoning oh, yes. of the head and the poisoning, mm-hmm. the poison in the gut that they found. This is charming for all listeners, I'm sure. Well, especially at lunchtime. I feel that they just really didn't like that person. <laughs> well, you know, now this is um, a strange thing, but there's a, a, an ironic... Um, sort of double-edged idea around this idea of the sacrifice, which is that it was killing, but it was killing underpinned with this immense sense of reverence. Mm. Um, It was very careful, very um, ritualised killing with a very specific spiritual purpose. Mm. And although I'm not... Um, suggesting that it's awesome to perform human sacrifice. Um, you know, I, I, I did sort of come to a point where I understood it. It didn't just seem like this um, this completely sort of mindless brutality that it, that it may have seemed mm. at first. Mm. Um, but something, it, it was to do with, with honouring and acknowledging life. I guess, and, and sort of offering something back. It's and, hard and it, to put ourselves into that mindset, isn't it, from it is, in the 21st century? Sure, but at the same time, um, you know, we send people off to war and, mm. and that's, what is that but sacrifice? And the Romans were doing similar things anyway, you know. Yeah. Not working on an equivalent sort of um, scale mm. here anyway. Uh, the, um, the track I chose to play, uh, which is the... Uh, the first one on our CD for today is um, called Over the Mountain and it's by an artist called Caraticus uh, and it's from Celtic Sessions Volume 1. This is China Mieville, author of Perdido Street Station and The Scar and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR-FM. There we go. Marching Over the Mountains with Caraticus, the... Celtic Sessions, Volume 1, and the obvious track to play because um, Caracatus or Caradog is the main character in Ilka Tamp's Song Woman book from Tex Publishing. Um, the obvious track to play would have been The Court of King Caracatus, which is that Rolf Harris song. <laughs> but since I've um, thrown that CD away, never to be played <laughs> again... Thank um, God. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, there's a whole thing to unpack there, which we don't have to unpack today because I have another track. Uh, all right, now um, we've got uh, this book, which is the second book of the uh, the Song of Kendra. Where does the word Kendra come from? That came... Well, it's a Scottish... It's uh, an ancient Scottish word yeah. that means woman of knowledge. Okay. So... And she's... Her first name is... Um, Aelia. Aelia, so, mm-hmm. which means um, light yeah. in uh, Irish. Yeah. Uh, or Gaelic. Um, and... Um, this is uh, interesting to me. She is the uh, she is a, a, a wise woman with, I will say, magical powers. I'll go for that um, of prophecy and perhaps shape shifting. I'm not entirely sure of that. That could all be drug induced. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that, that reminds me, and she becomes the, um, the without going too much into the plot, uh, the advisor to um, 
hiking uh, Caradog mm. in the rebellion against the, the, uh, the Roman Empire, mm. which is just sort of um, after Julius Caesar's uh, initial uh, reconnaissance in force of um, Britain. This is the Claudian invasion, the, yeah. uh, the full-on Roman yeah. occupation. Um, this shape-shifting, it reminded me a bit of the Once and Future King with mm. T.H. White's uh, turning King Arthur into... Um, different animals to educate him. Mm. Um, is there a, a, any a template you're using there for the shape-shifting? Yeah, a couple of things. So um, very much that ancient mythology, that Welsh mythology, so the four branches of the Mabinogi, yeah. um, there's a lot of... Uh, transmogrification between human and animal people turning into pigs and dogs and wolves and eagles and Mm -hmm. owls and um it seemed to me to be very much part of that druidic worldview that um seamless kind of totemic blending between human and animal but there is of course the element of the um the the hallucinogenic Mm. drugs that, that were um that were taken at times and yes yeah, so that's deliberately i've left that deliberately blurry <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like that um not only is that she's got the uh, these prophetic powers and so on that she does she's a herbalist as well and a doctor essentially a healer mm. Mm. Um, that gives uh, an added sort of sense of realism to the character mm. I think that works well mm. um <laughs> one bit because of course this is a, the, the collision of at least two different cultures um, there are people who straddle both for example the character of Caradog can speak and read Latin yes um, and the there are Romanized Celts uh, yeah. one in particular appears at one stage in the novel um, and <laughs> somebody with him uh, Romans uh, make a disparaging comment about the Celts not being able to make two walls meet at a proper right angle yes that, that made me laugh out loud. Really? Yeah. Why? Why? <laughs> because what? because that's a typical Roman attitude. Yes. You know, I mean, our roads are straight. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. Because well, do you, because it's interesting with the um, a lot of the Iron Age British buildings were round. Of course. But um, some of the temples were kind of that um, rhomboid shape or a kind of variation of a four sided shape. Um, but a lot of the research into the the footings of those shows that these slightly odd angled um, buildings, the angles replicate some of the solstice directions so or, or kind of um, uh, replicate those angles. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're actually believed to be buildings, you know, with a great deal of cosmological sort of resonance. Um, but, of course, the Romans didn't didn't read any of that stuff. Mm. Which is interesting because they were very much into, um, not geomancy, but, you know, they knew, they knew their, um, their uh, mythological connections to... Um, but that was their mythology, of yes, course. Not yes. this, um, not this uh, pagan... It's interesting, isn't it? Any, anything is pagan as long as it's not your mythology. <laughs> yes, and they were very threatened by the Druids because the Druids were powerful and had a lot of influence over the, um, the kings and, and the leaders. So there was that, um, that partnership or that duality mm-hmm. so that the Druids... Um, had had quite a, a political influence, so that the Romans were very keen to 
and and obviously a, a very um, strong investment in maintaining their culture. So, in order to to um, succeed in colonising those tribes, they needed to break down the the network of the druids, or and or convert them, as mm. as Rome often did. They would. Um, basically sanitise alien religions and yes. then incorporate them into their own. They're very good at that, at stealing things from other people. And Appropriating using the locals. Uh, but they had to first subdue them, otherwise yep. it, it, it didn't quite work for them. Yeah. So you couldn't have a temple of Isis in Rome until you'd conquered the Egyptians. Um, but it's, it's interesting, the, um, you've done, I can tell you've done the right research here. You've got um, auxiliaries uh, in um, Albion from other countries, which of course mm. is what the Romans like to do. They'd recruit people in one part of the empire and shift them to another to fight because yep. they'd have no ties to the land there. Yeah. 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 Um, what was your references for the, uh, the Roman um, side of things? Oh, who did I read? Um... I read <laughs> Yeah. So Rob's pointing at Tacitus. Yes, obviously obviously Tacitus, but then quite a few historical interpretations of so Graham Webster was a, a oh, big yeah. um was a was a big source. Um but yes, the work of Tacitus is probably the the primary Roman source for the period mm-hmm. and Cassius Dio. Um but it was his uh, Tacitus's descriptions of the battles that um, Caradog fought, that Caradocus fought, um, and and the military information that he writes about that that was my um, most important source. Mm. But it was just tantalisingly brief, and because um, there's bits of that that are missing, obviously. Um, but the biggest mystery is where that final, you know, the decisive battle, because Caraticus was, I call him Caraticus because most people yeah. know him as that, um, you know, was at one point the most wanted man in the Roman Empire. He was a, you know, thorn in the side of this this push to colonise um, Britain and they needed to subdue him, they needed to get rid of him and they couldn't. He was, he evaded them and he... he, he um, wouldn't be captured and so finally um well spoiler alert although most people <laughs> Look, <laughs> most people it's, it's been a thousand years yes <laughs> you know the, the the place where that matter was finally resolved is not is not um agreed on hmm. and uh that's really because it, it was actually the nature of that mountainous um, landscape that was so pivotal in t- to that battle, that exciting battle that Tacitus describes, that final battle. And I went to Wales in search of that battle place, and I, I found a place that I of the suggested possibilities that for me felt the most compelling. Mm. And that's where I said it. Well, you've described it quite quite well. I, I've <laughs> I've carried a Roman shield, a scutum, and uh, worn the armour and um, climbed up hills. And and the description that you've got in there, you've, you've pretty much nailed it. It's really unpleasant going up a hill wearing armour, <laughs> let alone having people lobbing javelins and arrows at you as stones well. Stones on your head. And stones, yeah. Not, yeah. not much fun. So, yeah, c- congratulations. I think you've captured that quite well. Thank you. Not that, of course, the um, the Celts were able to capture the Romans there, but never mind. <laughs> no. This is like this is like fighting. You can see my obvious biases and prejudices here, and I'm aware of that. <laughs> so, 
Oh, dear me. Uh, okay, now um, your character, Alilia, uh, sorry, Alia. Alia, does a bit of travelling in the in the book. Yeah. Um, quite a bit of travelling, really, uh, when you get to that stage in it, and it's. But it's actually easy easy to forget. Uh, we, we think of our twenty first century travelling uh, modes of um, buses and trains and planes and ships and things, and we and we we kind of look back and go, oh, you know, they must have all lived in the same lived and died in the same village. But yet, Rome actually made travel around their known world extremely practical and easy. Yes, that's what amazed me as well. They they got around. Mm. They traversed quite large distances they just took a bit longer Mm -hmm. to do it they had a postal system yeah a message system yeah i've read some um um, roman documents uh, from a place actually in britain it was where they um discovered the 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 tablets the clay tablets that they were sending backwards and forwards uh and these survive the um the 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 destruction of whatever place it was and uh, you know and they're very very mundane it's like mother please send me another pair of socks <laughs> uh, the, the you know the commandant's wife is going to have a birthday party it'd be really great if you could come along mm-hmm. and and i stop and think although this is like you know the first century ad and it seems like so terribly long ago if you reckon it in human scales of um, generations it really isn't yeah that's right yeah, yeah. it's it's sort of the the um dawn of modernity mm. absolutely mm. well uh ilka tamka's book song woman which is book two of the songs of kendra is out now from text publishing uh, and there may be a third book in the works. Mm-hmm. The first book is called Skin, um, and this one. And I, and I, I mentioned that the cover um, went against my rules because it's got a uh, was it actually a red-haired woman? Oh no, not quite. You know, a, a cloak wafting up some Welsh hillsides. Nothing against the actual artistic value of the cover. It's a lovely cover. It's a beautiful cover. <laughs> it's just it's the the the, the, the whole mode is kind of a cliche in fantasy covers mm. and romance novels too for that matter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well there is there is a little uh, we, we need to uh let readers know that um there is a little tone of romance oh yes in the book yes it is a it is a uh, well okay you know you've got a um, big hairy chested uh, celtic warrior with mustaches that mm. go on forever and you know someone has to fall in love <laughs> with someone him. has to fall in love with him but you've actually approached as one final thing you've actually approached that i thought quite realistically um given the culture and the um and the political the political religious motivations of these characters you haven't just like sort of thrown them all together and expected them to sort of give you this um mills and boone sort of thing no well i'm glad you feel that <laughs> way um but no I, I think uh and i this this will be a spoiler so i won't talk about it too much but <laughs> there is very much that sense in the book about the um the deeper significance of the relationship between um, the king and the woman who represents the land mm. that he is sovereign to. Sure. And and I think that was what was driving me in terms of their um, connection to one another. Mm. Well, it would have had to have been somebody <laughs> otherwise. But, yeah, no, I, I totally get that. It makes – it does lock into the whole socio-political setting that you've got. So it doesn't, it doesn't just read as um, – as, 
uh, what would we call it, fan service in anime or something like that. <laughs> shipping. Uh, shipping, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you very much for coming in and thanks to our talk producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, um, for setting me on the, the road to talking about this and, uh, and thanks to your publicist as well, whose name is... Jane. Jane. Thank you to Jane from Text Publishing. And uh, and uh, also thank you to your son who's been nobly waiting in the background. <laughs> Diligently playing Geodash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got a track here which is um, Celtic Army Marching to Battle with Romans featuring Lana Ross and it's by Andrei Krylov from his Bard Music Fantasy on... Well, there's a title here. Bard music fantasy on Celtic, Gothic, Irish, Scottish, Welsh, Slavic, medieval dances and songs for German Renaissance folk, Luke, and guitar. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> now, I wouldn't have stumbled upon that one by accident. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. I'm Terry Pratchett, the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels, so you can believe me when I say that Zero-G on 3 R is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the black stump. I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere, anywhere in the world, so you know you can trust me on this. Ha 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 ha, with three exclamation marks. There we go. Mentioning the war quite a bit there with Ilka Tamka's Song Woman. Mm, that was a good there. little chat. And that, that war was Romans versus Celts. <laughs> <laughs> Who won the bloody war anyway? Won, won. <laughs> Go off. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, just a few things I want to quickly mention uh, on Netflix on Friday, season three, first episode of The Good Place. Yes. I haven't... Not. I've been saving it as a reward. It is... Very rewarding. Okay, good. It's still I'm, just as fun. I got into that quite late, so I actually haven't had to wait that long for each season, so I'm pretty pleased. This is not really a spoiler. The episode is called Everything's Bonza. Hmm. So expect a, a strong Aussie connection. Oh, because we have to wait episode to episode now, we don't do. we? We do, because it's once a week. And I actually did get a couple of Australian actors in there. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, it's pretty woeful, the rest of them. <laughs> Oh, dear. Okay. Um, yeah, great uh, start for the new season. And they've managed to change up the paradigm once again. You know, remember the yes, big change between shift. first and second? It's quite masterfully done. Oh, it is exquisitely done. Speaking of which, I have no doubt at all, Doctor Who mm. starts up next, uh, very soon, actually, next Monday. And... Um, is that right? Uh, maybe thereabouts. And uh, Jodie Whittaker is now the 13th Doctor. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Hoo-hoo. Yeah, indeed. About time, as they say. Uh, um, I'm actually going to have to watch some broad church to mm. catch up with her. Although I did see her in Attack the Block. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. I go on about that all the time. It's very – not many people have heard of it or watched it. But, um, yeah, I really – and it also has um, – Aliens. Well, it does, exactly. Yeah. Doctor and Aliens. And speaking of Aliens, um, The Orville, Seth MacFarlane's uh, science fiction, <laughs> epic space, Star satire, Trek, parody. satire, yeah, all, many things, is on SBS On Demand. Oh, okay, cool. And also being shown on SBS as well. So uh, the first season, of course, at the moment, uh, great show, well worth watching, especially if you're a Star Trek fan. He has done well to 
appeal to Star Trek fans because I think that was very fine line. Mm. It's um, a little bit Galaxy Quest. It's like Star Trek was set in the universe of Galaxy Quest, which is kind of a parody within a parody. Yeah. But he actually has ma- – him and his team have actually managed to uh, pull um, almost from today's headlines uh, issues of moment mm. and, and really deal with them in quite – a complicated way at times while laughing as well. Yeah. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do. Um, once they hit about episode three, it really goes into uh, into uh, warp drive mm. and they start um, actually touching some buttons that, I, that even Star Trek hasn't done in a while. Okay. Uh, okay. Now, there have been so many shows that have been dropping. Yes. Um, I watched another one on SBS called Nude which is exactly what it, it sounds like. Um, it's about a near-future dysto-utopia. It's a French series and it's all set in, um, in France, in, in Paris more or less, uh, where in future they've done away with clothing for security reasons, mm. the transparency security. laws. Okay. Um, I watched all of it. Uh, it's a bit confronting at first for the first episode or so, and then you get used to it. Interesting. Um, I won't really go on about it here at the moment. I hadn't planned on that today, but um, worth worth a look. Okay. Uh, I mean, naked a, the naked city police procedural. Unique premise. It, I'm into it is it. very unique. Okay, but we're on another Netflix series. Yes. Or, or another two, actually. So I brought this to you as a suggestion, and you were saying before the show that you probably wouldn't have delved into it no. otherwise. So we're going to talk a little bit about Maniac, mm-hmm. which is obviously the new vehicle on Netflix. It's actually a loosely based remake, but we'll go into that a little later, of a Norwegian series also called Maniac. Mm-hmm. And it's helmed by Kerry Fukunaga. Mm-hmm. Now, do you? what's your kind of experience of his stuff? Well, I... I nothing, Yeah, basically. right. You, you, you'll be, I think... Uh, oh, no, Jane Eyre in 2011. Yeah, so he's done a few things that are very up my street. So he did the first season of True Detective, mm-hmm. and he's still the executive producer on that. Uh, he did Jane Eyre, that um, version that had Mia Vasikovska and Michael Fassbender in it. And he's also executive producer on The Alienist, which is the serial killer in New York, uh, late 1800s kind of period murder thing. So all things I'm, I'm into, but I actually haven't watched that. Um, and he's the director of the new Bond movie next in uh, 2020. Is he? Yeah. Well, he's, he's got a lot of he's balls got... in the air at the moment, I think. he's Yeah. But he's also um, um, working on uh, completing Stanley Kubrick's epic film Napoleon mm. with um, Steven Spielberg, mm. Mm, she says. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'll uh, hold my judgment on that one. The main thing I know him for is he was actually originally attached to the adaptation of It that was going to be a short series. Mm. He was originally attached to produce, direct, write, all of that. That's why he still has a writing credit on the movie It that ended up being um, directed by Andy Machete. But he originally, a lot of people say, this is a slight tangent, that um, 
Finn Wolfhard was cast in it because of his attachment to Stranger Things, but he was actually the only child actor that was originally cast by Kerry Fukunaga in the first iteration of it. Iteration? Yeah. So he was the only child actor that actually was still in the second version. Um, And so, yeah, so Fukunaga had some attachment to that. I think his vision was quite different, but I was really intrigued when he was going to be um, helming that up. Okay, Fukunaga is the showrunner of the American adaptation yes. of Maniac. Uh, right next to this on Netflix is the original Norwegian TV series yes. of Maniac. So if you want to go chronologically, um, the Norwegian show is a way to go first and then into <sighs> this one. No, I mean just, you know. It's, yeah, yeah this, but it doesn't really. It came out in 2015, so, you know, yes. and that sort of thing. Now that is done by Espen Petrus Andersen Lervag. Nice. A Norwegian writer, comedian and actor, and he was the showrunner for the Norwegian Maniac series, which is set in a psychiatric facility, uh, and we get to see the the, the the character who is actually the, um, the showrunner. Mm. Um, we see him in this facility and he has these fantasies that he can see in his head yeah. and the staff just watch him acting out it's very much mirrors what's happening in reality. Yeah. We kind of switch between the two. Yeah. I watched the first episode of that. As did I. It's a superhero one. Yes. Um, very much like Batman. It's uh, it's sort of moulded on that. Yeah. yeah, complete with the music too. I actually enjoyed it. It's only 25 minutes. Yeah. So what I thought was interesting, I mean, we'll delve into the American Mm. version but it, the tone is totally this one it leans more towards comedy the norwegian yeah. one it's sort of plays to that formula like you mentioned of the fantasy um and yeah it just seems to have that sort of i think each episode they sort of play off a different type of genre or different type of you bought a yeah, energy uh, a track in from the soundtrack haven't you i brought a track in from the American Netflix version mm-hmm. of Mania. God, that's really confusing that they're both called the same thing. But yes, I brought in a little track because it's actually got a really lovely score. So this is by Dan Roma mm-hmm. and it's called Annie. And so this is from the score of the American version of <laughs> Maniac. This is Raymond D. Feist, the man who started the Rift War. Mm, will it help if I say I'm sorry? Zero G, it's totally lacking in gravity. Mm. Yes, so that was Annie. Um, from the score by Dan Roma for the American version of Maniac, which is on Netflix right now. Maniac. Ten yes. episodes. Yes. Uh, this is the American adaptation, not the Norwegian one. Uh, it's set in the not-too-distant future where, well, a bunch of people, including our two main protagonists, sign up for Nebedine Pharmaceutical Biotechs. Oh, I ex- love... Experimental program. I just love the... All of the cinematography and kind of the, what do you call it? I, there's a name for it, but I can't think production of it. Production design. The, yes, yeah. you know what I'm going for. <laughs> the production design of this alternative future retro. It's like this retro futuristic world mm-hmm. with old PCs and lots of things in 64-bit, but uh, also like, you know, crazy dog robot poo picking up things. <laughs> She's, talk, she's talking about the sanitation drones. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I just the melding is obviously right oh, up my street. I oh my god! I just cool. jansplained that. I'm sorry. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. N P 
PB, their experimental program, will diagnose and treat our two main characters' existing mental health issues. Mm -hmm. I almost feel like I'm doing the spiel here. Using a (laughs) mad science and combination of drugs and microwaves. (laughs) Pill A. Yes, there is pill A, pill B and pill C, Mm -hmm. which uh, all can help identify your core traumas and remap healthier pathways in the brain with microwave technology. Mm. But this is a trial. Yes. So it's not uh, for money. You know, you volunteer and yep. um, they pay you money. <laughs> so, yeah, just actually, since you broached the subject of the production design, mm. um, it's set in the near future, like uh, Her, if you mm-hmm, remember that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, th- and there are sanitation robots and what they call evade pods where mm. people can hide away from their lives in and have all of their physical yeah. needs catered to. There are, everything has um, – because everything is a smart thing. They all yeah. have computer voices, which is an easy way to say it's futuristic. Oh, but I think just the way they do it is quite masterful in that I, nothing ever really fe- – it always feels like it has a purpose. Do you know what it reminds me of? Mm. Brazil. Ooh. The production design in that. The orientation video is on screens hanging from the ceiling in a cluster a bit like a spaceship, mm-hmm. like the Nostromo from Ooh, Alien. Very much. The arm patches on the uniforms are yeah. very Nostromo-like from the crew patches. Someone likes Alien in there. Everything in the facility, I think, is very nicely put together. And in a way, in a thematic way, that also mirrors the cryopods that they had in Alien where everybody gets to sleep in hibernation. Yes. There's also... Sorry, you go. And that's very important in this film. There's also a lot of kind of retro Japanese influences as well because the company has a... It's sort of a Japanese company. Yeah. And so the sleeping pods is very much like a capsule hotel as well. Oh, yeah. A couple of the staff, they're to be of Japanese heritage. And so... I like that they sort of bring a bit of that kind of 80s. But it's very humorously done too um, because the computer there, uh, GRTA Greta mm-hmm. um, AI, has old-fashioned blinky lights. I love the, the look of that. I think it's really well done. And um, there, are, there are jokes in it too in the mm. production design. Like um, there's a printer. And it almost looks like an old tractor feed printer. It, yeah, it kind of is. And it's set in an alcove. And this is the main way you get information mm. from your computer. And it's set in a little alcove that's almost but not quite above arm reach yeah. in an impractical alcove. And I kept being drawn to that every time they used that. I thought, who does that? <laughs> who puts the printer up there, you know? And, and it just made um, it unsettled me. And there's mm. a lot of stuff like that in this. In this. It is. The tone is very unsettling and I will say I think it's interesting how it shifts over the courses of the episodes. Mm. So the first episode is very much introducing a bit about our world and Owen, who's the Jonah Hill character. Played by Jonah Hill, yeah. And the second episode is really setting up the Emma Stone character, um, Annie. Mm-hmm. And Jonah Hill and uh, Emma Stone were together in Superbad. Yes, classic teen film. Um <laughs> And, yeah, and then it kind of goes on to a bit more of a journey of looking at inside the facility, which the parts of that part I really liked. And then it shifts into this new structure of episodic, thematic episodes that kind of have a, what would you call it? They are, they're, 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 they don't use the word too much because they don't like it. They think it's primitive. But therapeutic fantasies. Yes. Role playing almost, but within your brain. Yeah, to work <laughs> through traumas. And there's breadcrumbs throughout. We won't go into them because yeah. part of the joy is seeing them for yourself. Breadcrumbs you of the main story in each of these fantasies. You can see how this translates from the Norwegian one. 
Mm. Easily. That's, I think, probably the only thing that I can draw a parallel. Mm. I think these two shows are very, very different. Um, Emma Stone, we know from um, the Spider-Man movies, the Garfield ones, the Andrew Garfield ones. She's in Birdman. Mm -hmm. And Zombieland. Yep. And also... Sally Field is in this, yes. who was Aunt May in the Spider-Man movie. Yeah, so they were together in that too. Yeah. Um, they have an interlocking character arc within this um, story that's really quite well explored, mm. I thought. Um, and this not-too-distant future setting allows us to give alternative realities as well. Because, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm clued up on that right from the start with the mm. first two episodes where we get the induction story from both characters. Yes. And you see the differences, like oh, Rashomon, you know. So. I'm just not sure. There's something about the Owen character in that first episode that made me so uncomfortable. I just feel like when I see characters that are so downtrodden yeah. and I feel so bad and just everything is so bad for them and things keep happening, mm-hmm. it just really gets to me. I guess it means doing its job well. I could see William H. Macy playing that character as well. Yeah, yeah like, I mean, of- and it speaks to how well he plays the he role. Does. I think it's they're both role. superb in this and they have a really good chemistry. We also have Justin Thoreau in there, not to be mistaken with any of the other highly talented <laughs> Thoreau family. Uh, he, he plays a doctor. He, um, and the co-creator actually, who I should have mentioned earlier, Patrick Somerville, he worked on The Leftovers, the American remake of that, who which had Justin Thoreau in it. So mm. I believe that, he, that might have been the connection. He also worked on The Bridge, the American remake of The Bridge and The Tunnel. He's a screenwriter, which allows me to say that he worked on Iron Man 2. Oh, did he? There's my Tony Stark reference. And Tropic Thunder too, by the way. Oh, he did. Yeah, he did too. Uh, And um, we also have uh, Sonia Mizuno, Mm -hmm. who is the Japanese-born British actress. um, And she's worked with Andrew Alex Garland on Ex Machina and Annihilation. And she was recently in In? Crazy Rich Asians. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) We've done our homework there. Um, Yeah. Gabriel Byrne. Oh, he's, he's an old hoofer, isn't he? I didn't know he was going to be in this and I was quite delighted. I think I first saw him playing Uther Pendragon in Excalibur back in the 80s. Oh, yes. um, <laughs> he's great. Uh, you know, this is... Um, even Hank Azaria shows up in there, speaking of mystery men. Um, so, you know, that, there's they've got quite a creditable cast in there. Oh, gosh. Netflix has really thrown money at this because they're mm. some big names. They wouldn't be cheap. I thought this was a fine, surreal fantasy. Yes. Um, I love some of the eras that they set them in. Mm. The 80s one is hilarious. <gasps> I just love, I mean, her accent, I don't know how accurate that is, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> it's they, like a New Jersey. They, they, play to, they play to one of my favourite eras, the uh, the Diesel Punk 1947. Oh, yes. Later on. Yep. Uh, and they get Lord of the Ringy as well. I saw that too. <laughs> but I think what's important to say is that it always, they kind of draw threads back to the main lives of these two characters. Mm. They seem to be fairly strange choices of kind of themes that they do, but I think I haven't finished the series yet, I should also say that, but you have. Mm-hmm. I feel oh. like they have a bit of a rhyme to, and reason to it. Make sure, because we, because these Netflix things, as they um, spiral, as they you binge through them, mm. sometimes you skip the recaps and the uh, the end credits. Oh, okay. So Don't do that with the last episode of Maniac. Watch mm-hmm. the whole credit sequence you know. So, not to the end of the credits, but there is a, a scene a that you need to see. So, without spoilers, obviously, what's your having watched the whole package? I'm, I think, about four episodes in. What's your thoughts overall? Uh, I think it's a definite. Um, 
yeah, no, maybe it's a yeah mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love the um, the in jokes and things for it. Like there's a there's a, a McMurphy room. <laughs> You know, um, uh, one floor of the cuckoo's nest reference at one stage, uh, but I also like the. I'm not normally one for this kind of um, strong relationship mm. story, but it did grab me, mm. and I thought they did it. They, they executed it finely. What did you think? I look. I didn't know what I thought in the first couple of episodes. I was a bit discombobulated. There's a lot of things here on my things I love list, mm-hmm. but. Overall, I think I want to watch a couple more and see. I think I felt a bit taken out of it, actually, when they went to that first themed episode, that New Jersey one. I felt like I wanted something to hold on to and it hadn't left me with anything. So I, I'm intrigued, though. I'm going to finish it. Hmm. I think it's done. they've done very well. I wonder if they'll do a second season. I know they're doing a second season of the Norwegian one. Mm. But again, I mean, it's like cats and dogs, I think. Yeah. Just, yeah, very different. But, I mean, I think they obviously had a clear vision for what they wanted to do here. Yeah, this is not a this is not an adaptation like, um, oh, you know, uh, any other one that I've seen before. But it's. I think it's a good extension of the concept. I think they've had the freedom to build on it and take it their own direction because mm. they've added that whole futuristic thing. All of that is purely for the American maniac. Mm. So they've managed to just take, <laughs> well, managed to take what they wanted from the original and yeah. pretty much built a new thing. Mm. It's like it's a different type of car just because it's got an engine as well. But mm. Yeah. Mm. if you liked. Um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotlit Mind. Spotless Mind, spotless yeah. Spotless Mind, Spotlit. Or uh, even um, even being John Malkovich, actually. Yeah. Or, or Wes Anderson it's a li- Mind. Being John Malkovich is a good one because I think there's a bit more of an edge to it than mm. Eternal Sunshine, yeah. which was definitely sort of very much... Yeah. No, I think those are good. Um, yeah, and Wes Anderson too. I think there's a feeling of his kind of style in this in places. A little, a little. Yeah. A little. Especially in the music. The, the <laughs> score is great. I do highly recommend that. Mm. Well, that's about it for Zero G for today. Yeah. Um, what a diverse uh, hour we've had. Okay, yeah. Look, I, I, I'm, I'm extremely saddened to hear of the, uh, the death of former Free Triple RFM broadcaster Ricky Vengeance. Um, and that has a connection to Zero G that I'll we'll talk about next week because mm-hmm. I, I wanted to give proper time, proper yeah. time to that. And uh, up next is Dave Lang with um, Astral Glamour, mm-hmm. filling in for Joe. Um, uh, for Joe, <laughs> and um, uh, we'll go out with a, uh, a track here, our David Bowie track for today, uh, All the Mad Men, mm-hmm. tying off our maniacal theme there with um, Mr Bowie from his... Well, this is from this this particular one is a remastered version from five years. The album. Nice, thank you, Rob. Thank you, Megan. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.